0: to turn your attention to this morning are found in the book of Philippians, and we'll be looking at Philippians chapter 3, which speaks to Paul's hope in the resurrection. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise... And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And also for one. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Please pray with me one more time. Lord, as we, as we begin to look at Your Word, we want to hear from You. Lord, my brothers and sisters have gathered not to hear my thoughts and insights. They've come to hear Your Word. What You have revealed to us And I pray that You would both give us understanding in the Philippians 3, but also help each one of us to see how You want us to respond to it. That You would convict us of sin. That You would expose idols. You would challenge us, encourage us, comfort us. Lord, You know each one of our needs. Lord, and especially if there's anyone here who is yet to truly trust You, To experience the the true transforming power of being born again. That today would be the day of salvation. We ask that you'd be so merciful. In Christ's name. Amen. So I want to begin by asking a couple questions. What is significant about you? What is it that you'd want people to know about yourself when you meet them? Why do you think you're worthy of respect? From our youth, we quickly learn to despise what is shameful, insignificant, what is worthless in our culture. And to learn to value that which is esteemed in our culture. We quickly find out where we are in the pecking order of our churches, of our schools, of our neighborhoods, in our families. And we learn what makes a person significant, often basing this on things that are actually outside of that person's control. Their physical appearance, their athletic abilities, their academic abilities, their socioeconomic status. And none of us wants to be considered worthless. None of us enjoys being called a loser. We abhor the thought of a wasted life. And because of that, people will do almost anything to gain and to maintain what others consider valuable. To gain and maintain worth. In the eyes of others. They will lie to loved ones. They will go into massive debt. They'll sacrifice friendships. They'll manipulate other people. They'll manipulate situations. People will sacrifice even their dignity. Or their integrity just to get what they want. We can sell ourselves out for almost anything. And why is that? Because the reality is. Deep down, we crave significance. We crave worth. We crave hope. And, and it's different for each person. Like there are some people who are, who are sold out to whatever our culture seems as valuable. And there's others that put their value in something else that another person would think of as stupid and silly. Just like what you once valued when you were three years old is very different than what you, where you find your value now. But it's worth asking, what do you think, even now, wherever you're at in life, what do you think gives you significance? What is it that you think will grow your prestige, your worth in the eyes of others? Is it Your athletic accomplishments? A higher position in your company? Um... More money. For some, it's, it's just the accomplishments of their kids. So they can talk about what their kids have done to their extended family members or at the co-op. And in light of this craving for significance, the Bible has some good news and it has some bad news. We'll start with the bad news. And it's this. You can never achieve any true and lasting worth you can never do it it's an empty and vain pursuit because even what you do achieve will be forgotten you will die and everyone else around you will die whatever whatever accomplishment that people admire you for even a short period of time eventually those who even know about it will be forgotten You might be the greatest saint in all of history. And yet the historians will only write what they want to write about you. Whatever they think is significant. And they might not even know the truth. They may in fact describe you as a pariah to society. And again, even if you were to achieve success in whatever whatever you think that means. If you were able to achieve exactly what you crave in your heart right now. Again, eventually you're going to die. Whatever you achieve will either get passed on to another person or they'll just be, they'll forget about it. Nobody will remember. But even if everybody around you, maybe you just want respect today, admiration today, even if you have that, who cares what another person thinks? A fellow mortal? A person with a distorted mind as it is, who really doesn't know you, just is, just is envious or admires what they think they perceive. Really, only one person's assessment of your worth is of any significance. And that's God's. Because He alone sees all things. He alone really knows your true value. And so how does God assess your value? Well turn with me to Romans chapter three, verse ten. Romans three ten. It says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does give in one. So what is God's assessment of your significance, of your worth? All have become worthless on account of their sin. Now that's devastating news. I mean, the good news is at least you're not the only person that is seen as worthless because it says all everybody else has two, But that's that's hardly any comfort. So what's the good news? Well, the good news is that infinite worth, infinite significance is offered to you if you would put your faith in Christ. See, even though you have nothing in you that would allow God to consider you worthy as coming into his presence, worthy of any honor, worthy of any praise, God has offered you infinite worth if you would trust in the sacrifice of his son on your behalf. As Paul tells the Colossian believers, this is Colossians 121. You can look there. Colossians 121. He tells him, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. See, faith in Christ's work, though, on the cross we we see provides you with forgiveness of sins. It cleanses you. You can be reconciled to God no matter what sin you've committed. You could be a rapist. You could be a murderer. God says, if you have faith in Christ, I will accept you because of what he has done on your behalf. So it offers us forgiveness. But not only does it offer us forgiveness, it provides us with perfect righteousness. Not a righteousness of our own derived from the the law, as Paul says in Philippians 3, but that which is through faith in Christ. And even more than that, besides forgiveness... And righteousness, Christ offers us infinite glory, infinite worth, true worth. This is what he says in Romans eight eighteen. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us and in us is the idea. Just think about that for a second. People have suffered in horrific ways, indescribable ways. And Paul says, no matter how awful it was, it's, it doesn't hold a candle to the glory that are, that is available to those who place their faith in Christ. So even the greatest amount of loss, the greatest amount of humiliation and suffering pales, isn't even worth being compared to the worth that is going to be given to those who are in Christ. And I say that all of this just to introduce to you Philippians chapter three, because I want you to understand Paul's concern in why he's writing what he does to the Philippians. In particular, there are some false teachers in the church at Philippi that are leading people to abandon all that has been offered to them, all that is promised to them in Christ. They're abandoning Christ in order to find worth and significance and value in empty and worthless things. And people are believing them. And in fact, many people today fall into the same sort of deception. Even though they have been offered infinite worth in Christ, they still think that Christ isn't enough. But in fact, they have to also have worth and value and significance by pursuing the empty and vain things of this world. And so Paul writes this in Philippians 3 and tells the Christians there how to live in light of a future resurrection. And in fact, this this chapter really gives three commands. The first is given in verse 1. He says, finally, sorry, that's not very bright, but it says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. They are to rejoice in the Lord that because they are in Christ, they can have absolute confidence that they have all the significance, all the worth, all the glory they will ever need in him. They are to rejoice in the Lord. And this ties actually into the command in 4.1 that completes Paul's discussion. Where he says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord and stand firm. Don't go seek your value, your worth and significance in these empty things that unbelievers are pursuing. You don't need to. And thus the command in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's he's speaking to those who particularly are finding worth and value in rigid adherence to the law, the pharisaical law. And Paul explains in verses 4 through 6 that he wants to bought into that same value system. He wanted to be the most respected Jew, the most respected Pharisee, and he did whatever he could. He said righteousness which is found by the law, the pharisaical law. I was blameless. But now he says he doesn't care about any of that stuff. Instead, there's only one thing that he pursues, and that's Christ's likeness. And that, that's a singular aim, not just his ultimate aim, not just what he's eventually looking forward to. That is his singular aim in life to become more like Christ. Because he. All that other stuff, rubbish. Because he's got Christ. And this brings us to the third command. Look at verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Note especially verse 18. For many, many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So, if I could simplify all of what Paul is teaching in this chapter, it really can be come down to two things: don't be duped into seeking your worth outside of Christ, and secondly, pursue Christlikeness, spiritual maturity, in light of the promised resurrection. Let's look first of all at. That first point. Don't be duped into seeking worth outside of Christ. Notice how, how personal the concern this is to Paul. Verses 4 through 6, Paul presents this religious resume. And then he says in verse 4, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I am more. That, that word confidence in the flesh is confidence in what you've achieved, what other people respect, what other people admire. Wherever people, whatever people envy about you. Paul says, I had it all of what I wanted in the past. I had it. That that word confidence means that what you what you would lean on or what you'd rest in, where your hope was, your trust. Investors put their confidence in their, their portfolio. Socialites put their confidence in fashion magazines. Academics put their trust in how many works they've published. And Jews in Paul's era, they put their confidence in following the pharisaical law as best as they could. And Paul had followed it perfectly. And Paul's point in these verses is that he had banked everything in his life on becoming the most devout Pharisee that he could be. He had given his life He had given his money. He had probably cost friendships so that there would be no one who had done this better than him. He held nothing back. And yet despite the fact that he had created the world that he always wanted, he had that esteem and that respect. He now declares that everything he had ever once achieved to be nothing, to be worthless. Notice what he says. But whatever things were, were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul could now sum up all of his worth in just one word. He didn't need to present a resume to a church listing all of the things that he'd accomplished so that they might hire him. He just had one word. Christ. All of his worth was in Christ. And notice the words gain and loss. These are actually accounting terms in the Greek. Gains are assets where one's value is found. Losses, of course, would be like those those things that detract from value. So notice it's not that he looks at those things as just of zero worth, he sees them as negatives. They actually decrease my worth, they're losses. But notice especially that Paul doesn't just call these religious achievements that he achieved to be lost; he considers everything to be lost. Look at verse eight. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So, so why everything? I mean, why not? I mean, he's a Christian. Why not just these self-righteous? legalistic works. Why not just saying all this self-righteous achievement I consider lost? Why does he say everything? Because of the all-surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. He knows something about the glory of God in Christ. And he knows, therefore, something about what it means to be in Christ. Paul is saying knowing Christ is far and above more valuable than anything. Not worth being compared to anything this world has to offer. See this world teaches us that our worth. Including our, our safety. Our security. Our value is, is found in gaining More and rising to the top. But Paul is saying, if you are in Christ, who is the top? And you are in Him, then you're at the top also. You don't need anything else. You've gone from being a zero, in fact, even a negative, to being infinitely significant, infinitely glorious in Christ. So even if you were a rapist, even if you were an addict, or you were just... Considered a loser by everybody else around you. You were the one despised person in the company that nobody even liked. If you're in Christ, you have gone from zero to being infinitely significant. So, so telling a Christian that they have the opportunity to gain more significance, more value, more worth is like offering a few pennies to Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos. Okay, but it, it's meaningless, relatively so. And notice the fact that, that all that, what Paul says at the end of verse 8, he considers all things to be rubbish. As you know, that word means excrement or trash. It's filth. So not only are they worthless, they're, they're revolting and abhorrent in comparison to Christ. He'd come to recognize the ultimate worth of everything that this world offers. All that flashy and enviable stuff that, that we drool at when we see it in commercials. Paul just sees it as revolting because he sees it in comparison to true, lasting glory. They're valueless, eternally speaking. Even if they, these things look good on the outside and, and they are somewhat appealing to our flesh, they're eternally valueless. And so the only thing he says, the only thing worth gaining, the only thing worth achieving is Christ. And so if we have trusted in Christ, if our lives are in Christ, how then shall we live? If this is true, if we're in Christ and we've gained infinite significance, infinite worth, we were promised glory, then why not make the best of both worlds? Why not, since we have eternal glory, also just get as much glory and worth and significance now as we can? Well, I think we're free to do so, but the question is, why would we? Again, this would be like Bill Gates scrounging for pennies in a Walmart parking lot. Why would you? You can, sure. But if if. If Gates was to do that, that would say, that would just expose he really doesn't understand what he already possesses. He's wasting his time. And in fact, he's humiliating himself. See, if a person understands that everything they need in Christ, they have everything they need in Christ, then all they're going to want to do is pursue him. And not because that's how they're going to keep their salvation. Paul doesn't pursue Christ's likeness because he wants to keep his salvation. It's his confidence that it isn't in his own works. He pursues it because that's all that matters. Being like Christ. Which brings us to the second point. Pursue Christ's likeness. In light of the promised resurrection. Look at verse 10. He says, He counts all these things rubbish that he might know him. And the power of his resurrection, even sharing his sufferings, becoming like him, even in his death, if by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. That's where Paul's worth is found, because when he gets to the resurrection from the dead, then all that has been promised to him will be finally realized that glory won't just be something he hopes for. He will experience it will be his, not just a future hope, but a reality. He puts it another way in verse 13. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's interesting in this verse, that that phrase, one thing, in that verse, there's no verb. And that's to provide an emphasis. He just says one thing. I press on. And the one thing he does is press on towards Christ's likeness. And he does this by forgetting what lies behind. And he he stretches forward to what lies ahead. So what lies behind? Everything that this world considers of any worth, value, or significance. All of it. What lies ahead? Christ's likeness. The resurrection. In fact, Paul says he's straining forward... This word actually means to stretch out like a runner stretches for the finish line. He's he's putting forth exertion, all of his energy. The point is, he's not coasting in light of all these promises that are his in Christ. He's not coasting. He's not letting off the gas at all. In fact, he's putting his pedal to the metal, giving it his all this one thing I do. I strain forward to reach the goal. It says, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, verse 14. There's a goal, right? This, This verse tells us there's a goal to the Christian life. There's something we should be aiming towards. It also shows us that this goal is not behind us, it's ahead of us. So this tells us that the goal for Christians is not merely coming to Christ. Trusting in him, being born again. That's not the goal. That's just the beginning. There's a goal. It's just the first step. So it's a big deal, right, to have that first step, just like it's a big deal to be asked to march in the opening day ceremonies of the Olympics. It's, a, it's, it's important to be a part of that beginning, But every athlete in the Olympics knows that marching in the opening day ceremonies is not the point. It's just the introduction. The goal is when they cross that finish line. And they are going to put all of their effort, all of their focus into doing that. Paul knows that the goal of his life is to cross that line. In fact, he uses the same imagery in 1 Corinthians 9.24. In fact, the same word prize is used. 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? He tells all Christians, run in such a way that you would win. Run for the prize. Don't coast. Don't get distracted. Go for the prize. And that the prize Paul desires and pursues, he says, is the upward call. The end goal of the upward call. Well, what's this upward call? Well, that word call in the New Testament almost always refers to God's calling upon a person when he saves them. A regeneration is the theological word when a person becomes born again. So when God called Paul to salvation, it was a life transforming event. Paul didn't just change some of his decisions. He started going to church, started giving, tithing, going to Bible study. No, his his whole heart was transformed. He was a different person. And that changed the whole trajectory of his life. The once fierce persecutor of the church now who became its most ardent opponent, or sorry, defender. He used to want to cause the church to suffer. Now he is willing to suffer all things in order to defend the church and protect her. Think of a medieval knight who receives a message from a princess asking her to rescue to rescue asking him to rescue her from this ferocious dragon that's guarding her. Well if the knight she says comes and rescue her, she will be his forever. And so when the knight receives this summons, that doesn't compel him to stay in the castle. But he immediately gets up and goes and seeks to rescue the princess. He doesn't stay behind like he used to do and joust with the other knights, trying to prove who's better than the other guy, playing with swords and other things that knights might do. No, now he has a quest. Now he's got a purpose. When he receives that initial summons, he doesn't wait. Now he's got a goal. He's got something he wants to achieve. And he goes out immediately and that summons compels him to finish. He wants the prize. And Paul realized that when he was saved, he wasn't just saved to be reconciled, though that was a massive part of it. But he was, he was saved not only to be reconciled to God, but to worship God completely, truly, with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, to be like Christ. And having received this call, he presses on until it's fully realized. And so when will Paul receive this prize? At the resurrection. Verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body. We will have a glorified body like God. As Daniel describes it, we will shine like the stars. And that, that, just, that just gives you a picture of the kind of glory that we, just don't, we can't even compare anything in life to. And he'll do so by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. God is going to glorify Christians, those who have faith in Christ, and physically glorify them through the same power that he has to bring everything into subjection. God is going to use all of his power. and He's pretty powerful. Spoke the universe into creation by just speaking words. Imagine that power exerted toward making you infinitely glorious. That's what's offered to you in Christ. And Paul longs for that. But notice again, before he goes there, he warns the Philippians about the danger of being distracted from this one aim of Christ's likeness and falling again into pursuing empty worldly things. And all of us need to take this warning to heart. He says, For many, many, I tell you even now with tears, they walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 19 Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Remember the questions I asked at the beginning of this message? If your answer to any of those questions was anything other than Christ, there's at least something wrong in how you estimate glory, how you estimate significance. But it's possible that like the Philippians, you're just you, you are in great danger of falling away from Christ because of that. That though you know all these promises in the Bible, you're still you still find these temporal insignificant, really worthless things as more significance than the infinite glory that's offered to you in Christ. And you're tempted like the Philippians That Paul is warning, even with tears, to fall away. Or it's also possible that you've never actually fully trusted in him. You're like that knight. He's received the summons, but instead of going to rescue the princess, he'd rather just stay and prove that he's better than the other knights around him through playing with swords and jousting. You're still focused on the empty pursuits of this life because you've, you've never actually answered God's call. You've heard it, but you've never actually answered. You haven't gotten out of the castle to pursue Christ. And maybe it's because you've never really understood what's offered to you in Christ. And therefore, all this stuff of this life really is more attractive. And if that's the case, you just need to ask the Lord to change your heart, to open your eyes. To see what Paul sees so that you would not fall away to. Notice Paul says, he tells them with tears. Paul's deeply grieved because he certainly knows of some who actually have forsaken the gospel for the sake of earning earth, worth, earthly, worldly gain. He says, notice, they're walking as enemies of the cross see paul says they're enemies of the cross because it's not obvious they they claim to be christians they claim to be religious they claim to be examples that the philippians should follow look at all that we've accomplished look how devout we were we are we we get circumcised we fulfill the law They apparently claim to follow Christ, but they show by their vain pursuits and lifestyle that they're enemies of the Christ. and Because their life looks nothing like Christ's. Notice verse 19. The way these enemies of the cross live. End is destruction. God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. That word end... Right? In their worldliness, they're actually aiming at their own destruction. So these people are walking away from the only salvation that is available to them, the only means of obtaining any worth. They're walking away from it into the jaws of hell. Why would they do this? Because their God is their appetite. This just First, their desires, their longings. It's not necessarily a bad word. We we get hungry. We crave coffee. It's not necessarily a bad thing. We crave water when we're thirsty. But if we're being led by our fleshly appetites, that is a bad thing. So these aren't necessarily immoral things. It's just earthly things. The problem is not that they have appetites, but they've made a God out of their appetites. Their desires drive them more than the truth. So at the end of the day, when they make their decisions, it's about how they feel, what they crave, what they want. Not, how can I be like Christ? How can I value what Christ values? And these desires are leading them straight into the pit of hell. We also see that their, their glory is in their shame. right, The very things that they boast in, the very things that they want people to recognize about them, are the, are that, is that rubbish, The stuff that Paul calls rubbish. The very things they should be ashamed of is what they boast in. Why? Because their mind is set on earthly things. And notice, not just sinful things. Just earthly things. The point is they're focused on the things of this life that could be retirement, homes, Raises, trophies, Twitter followers, food. And this is why Paul commands the Colossians, Colossians 3 verse 2, set your mind, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth, because you've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you then also will appear with him in glory. You see how this relates directly with Philippians chapter 3. He also says this in Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. His point is you show what you value based upon where you set your mind, what you pursue. Your worth. Where you, where you really believe your worth is. And sometimes we don't really recognize what we really believe. You show what you really believe, where you really believe your worth is found, based upon what you pursue. And just as a person living for the stuff of this earth doesn't automatically, just because a person is living for the stuff of this earth, it doesn't automatically mean that they're an unbeliever. Because I, I think that there are, there are genuine Christians. There are Christians who are genuinely deceived into thinking they, they really do need to find significance in the stuff of this life. Even if they have Christ. They need both. And they're deceived. And even if they actually are saved though, the truth is they nevertheless are walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. Even if they aren't really enemies, they're walking like enemies. So from time to time, you may be watching a basketball game and you see a player shoot a basket into their own hoop or the other team's hoop because they get distracted. You turn around. It happens all the time with little kids. right? Once they realize what they have done, they, sh- they wouldn't keep doing it. That's the point. A genuine Christian, once they realize that they're pursuing the empty, vain things of this world rather than Christ, if they really do place their faith in Christ, they will stop. And what will their life look like? As Paul says, join in imitating me, my brothers. And he says, this one, one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, pressing forward to what lies ahead, I press on for the goal of the prize of upward call in Christ Jesus. He, he wants to be Christ-like. He pursues Christ-like in his life, Christ-likeness in his life and in the lives of his brothers and sisters and wanting other people also to be saved and to find their worth in Christ. So what should life look like in light of the resurrection? Again, A singular pursuit of Christ-likeness in ourselves and in others. It means waking up every day, approaching every task with this in mind. How can I honor Christ? How can I become like Christ? The Pacific Northwest, some of you know, was once home to one of the greatest trade empires in the world. When when Europeans landed on the shores of Western Washington, they discovered a very cheap and valuable resource that actually changed the landscape of that of this region forever. And what they discovered was otter pelts. These would sell for as much as 120 silver dollars in China, which was really effectively the what a sailor would make in a whole year. And the sailors figured out that they could trade for these otter pelts with just some of their leftover junk, just pieces of metal, old tools. They could sell something they don't even use to trade, something they don't even use anymore in order to gain an otter pelt that they could sell for $120. And hindsight exposes what initially appeared to be a great trade situation as nothing more than exploitation. American natives would give up furs, food, and provisions in order to obtain these relatively worthless trinkets. And no doubt they would have been far stingier had they known what these otter pelts, how valuable these otter pelts really were to these sailors. And likewise, we who live for a heavenly kingdom, we need to grow in our stinginess. We need to realize the abundant value of knowing Christ and following after him is incomparable to the relatively worthless trinkets of fame, money, any hope that this world offers. Please pray with me. Christ, again, we praise You because You have offered us infinite worth, though because of our sin, we were enemies of the cross and only worthy of death and damnation. Lord, there is no one who has any real worth before You except Christ. And yet you have given each of us who have placed our faith in you not just just the promise of hope, but the assurance of it in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And Lord, I pray that you would awaken anybody's heart Lord, who has not yet truly placed their faith in You. Lord, if there are some who have thought they have pursued You because they just didn't know what it meant to be a Christian, Lord, that You'd help them see that they need to fully trust You and pursue You. Lord, if there's anybody here, Lord, who, who knows that they haven't been pursuing You, Lord, though they actually have been saved, that they, this would be a day of, of repentance. And of course, God, if there's anybody here who knows they don't know You and never did know You, Lord, that You would help them to see the infinite significance, the infinite value, the assurance, the glory that is offered to them if they would only trust and believe.